Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Holy Waiting. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul encourages Christians in the midst of an ungodly culture to live in holiness as they eagerly await the return of Jesus. This morning's text is going to be 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12. I'm going to be reading and using the English Standard Version this morning. You can follow along on the screens or in the handouts or in your Bible or your device. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the word of our living, reigning, loving God. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were able to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This year I'm reading a lot of uh, the history of the Reformation and biographies and stories, and one of the things that you realize when you do that is all of the scandals that had been rocking the church prior to the coming of the Reformation. One of the backgrounds to the Reformation was a lot of scandals, and I'm talking about Uh, Just shortly before Martin Luther, one of the popes had multiple children. Uh, He was known to have many concubines that were there. Uh, They had all accrued incredible wealth to themselves and power. Uh, The leadership of the church most often was ruling only for its own good and only for temporal power rather than the good of the people. Many bishops had multiple bishoprics. They would have multiple cities and they would not even come. One of the bishops in England around the time of the Reformation uh, never even set foot in England. He was just living on the continent. I believe it was down in Italy. So there were all of these problems. And I wish, as I say that, I could say, isn't it great to know that those things are 500 years in the past? Except they're not. As we are here on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we realize the same scandals plague us today. If you've paid attention at all over the last several decades. We've seen scandals with sexual sins that have brought down entire ministries. We've seen uh, much greed where people have been caught buying all kinds of lavish things, paying themselves 
ridiculous sums of money, uh, abuse of power where shepherds were more like butchers rather than caring for the flock, uh, people who have compromised the Scripture under pressure when they go on a TV show and somebody says, surely you can't believe Jesus is the only way, and by the end of the time that the leader of the church is done talking, it sounds like Jesus is not the only way. We have the same type of scandals they had 500 years ago. And I bring these up because as we're going through this letter, Paul here is talking about their ministry. And he's laying out for us how we can know what leaders we should trust and follow. Because they had the same problems in the time of the New Testament that they do today, that there's nothing new since the fall. It's the same things being repackaged and recycled. The same problems surface again and again and again. So how can we know what leaders to trust? And what does holy ministry look like? If we were a holy people set apart for God and we are waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, what should ministry look like uh, inside the church of God? Well, Paul lays out several things for us. First, he tells us that holy ministry is characterized by a holy endurance. It's not a flash in the pan. It endures. Notice in verses 1 and 2, Paul says uh, in verse 2, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. Now, this is the background. If you read in the book of Acts, it's in Acts 17 that Paul came to the Thessalonians, but in Acts 16, he had been at Philippi, and they, in Paul's words, suffered and were shamefully treated there. And you can read all about it in Acts 16, but you remember this was where, when uh, Paul had actually uh, healed someone, that they were taken, he and Silas, and thrown in jail, uh, they were beaten, they were, they were laying there bleeding, and they were worshiping God, and God sent an earthquake that opened the doors of the jail and set them free. They had been very shamefully treated there, and many of us, if we're honest, if that's what had happened to us, and particularly I always think about Timothy, who's helping write this letter. Timothy was brand new to Paul's ministry at this point. He had just started out. Can you imagine if you join this guy on his ministry and the first major town you stop at, this is what happens. The guy and the other partner are beaten and thrown in jail and threatened and there are all of these riots. Uh, I think at that point, many of us would be very tempted to say, I think I'm hearing the voice of God telling me to go back home. I have no business being out here in the middle of all this because this is a mess. And then not only that, Paul leaves and he goes to Thessalonica and they run into the same problems there. And so Timothy would have reason to say, Paul, everywhere you go, it's like a hornet's nest stirred up. There are all these problems. But the people did not do that. The apostolic team, Paul tells us, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So even though it had gone this way in Philippi, when we showed up in Thessalonica, we didn't keep our mouths closed. We did the same thing we did in Philippi. We opened up and we started preaching the gospel. And you can read over several Sundays they do it, or several Sabbaths, actually Saturdays. They, they do that. And then the same problems stir up uh, among the Thessalonians. And so there is the midst of conflict there. But Paul says, we were bold. We kept declaring to you the gospel of God. We endured, we persevered. It did not matter what the response of those around us was because a holy ministry knows its task. It proclaims the word of God. Come what may, whatever the response of the surrounding culture is. And Paul tells us because they endured like this, their holy endurance was rewarded. 
Notice in verse 1, it says, You know that our coming to you was not in vain. It was not empty. It was not of no effect, is what the, the word there means. And so it was not in vain, not failure, not without results. God rewarded their labor with fruit. And this is a promise. Paul actually, as he's writing to the Thessalonians, is in Corinth. And later he writes to the Corinthians. And as he's talking with them about the doctrine of the resurrection and encouraging them to hold on, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so Paul tells them, your labor's not in vain. Everything is rewarded. God sees and he does reward. And this is a statement to all of us, because all of us are actually engaged in ministry in one way or another, that if we endure in faithfully ministering God's word, in spite of opposition, God will reward our labors with fruitfulness. And so I want to encourage all of us here, you may say, well, I'm never going to be engaged in full-time ministry or be a leader in the church, but we all are called to minister God's word to those around us. Paul here is largely talking about doing evangelism. And Paul tells us, don't grow weary in speaking God's word to others. Uh, we're not responsible for fruit. God is responsible for the fruit. We are responsible to faithfully and consistently declare God's gospel to others. And if we faithfully sow God's word to family, to friends, to co-workers, to neighbors, over time, God's word will bear fruit. And our task is simply to be faithful and to continue doing it. So think of Paul and the team there as, as a model for us. Paul's not discouraged when there is opposition to the word of God. He tells us we should, in fact, expect that. That's not our concern. Our concern is to faithfully continue enduring in ministry. The second area that Paul speaks about is not just a holy endurance, but a holy motive. And they had a holy motive for their ministry. In verses 3 to 6, Paul lays this motive out, and he speaks about it kind of from multiple angles, so we'll take time and look at each of these. First, in verse 3, he tells us, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Paul's saying, look, we didn't come to you under some kind of false pretenses. We were not uh, teaching something that was false. We weren't teaching some kind of error. What we are teaching you about Jesus is actually true. He did live. He did die. He was literally raised from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of God. We're not teaching error. Uh, and we're not trying to deceive you and get you to go after something. And we didn't have an impure motive in what we were doing. Our motive was holy and right and pure. And that is very important for us. A lot of this is going to be an example to you and I as we ever consider if you are ever moving somewhere else or you're becoming part of another church, these are the kind of things we need to pay attention to when we're looking for a place that we're going to plant ourselves. And Paul says motives matter. It matters very much why someone is doing what they're doing. And if we think about it, none of us like feeling like we're being manipulated, do we? And Paul, that's what Paul's saying. Look, we had a holy motive. We weren't trying to manipulate you. We didn't have something uh, you know, underhanded we were trying to do. It was arising out of a pure heart. We wanted you to know the gospel. 
That's why we were doing what we were doing. Secondly, Paul says that the, the ministry comes from God and is for the approval of God. That's one of the reasons their, their motives are safeguarded, Paul is saying, because we're doing this before God. Notice in verse 4, he says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul says, I didn't receive this trusting from some group of humans, so I'm not answering to them. I was entrusted with the gospel by God himself, and I'm going to answer to God for how I handle the gospel, and this controls what I do. I'm going to be giving account. I remember constantly I'm going to stand before God and give account for how I conduct myself, and therefore that guides my actions. So as a result, Paul says, we weren't trying to win people's approval, which is why when the persecution came, Paul didn't stop. Because he said, I wasn't doing this to win the approval of men. So whether they approved or whether they disapproved did not change what my behavior was going to be. Because I knew God approved of what we were doing, and I was going to answer to him. And so God is the one who is testing us, Paul says. He entrusted the gospel. He's testing and seeing how we're going to respond. And so all of my attention is focused on God. Now this leads then to verse 5, where Paul says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Now this again is because Paul says, since we weren't out, we didn't come from men, and we weren't uh, answerable to men, but rather we came from God and were answerable to Him, we didn't use some kind of flattery. We were concerned with how God viewed what we were doing. And so since we're working for God, we weren't going to use flattery with you to try and get a particular kind of response. And Paul here brings out something that was a constant problem then and now. Paul says, none of this was a pretext for greed. We weren't after your money. That's not what we're doing. Because many people in the days of, of the time of the New Testament, many speakers went around and they would, what they were after was money. And in fact, they would take whatever message you wanted to hear, and they would be paid basically to give a really eloquent argument. So they would argue whichever side you wanted. They would say whatever it is you wanted to hear and try to speak it so well that people would be impressed and would give them money. And Paul said, that's not what we're doing. We were telling you the truth. Whether you liked it or didn't like it was inconsequential to us. And we weren't after your money. Nothing we were doing was about your money. Greed was not our motive. Now, let me step aside for a second and just bring this down to, to Bay Ridge. This is one of the reasons, and I want you all to understand this, the elders don't know who gives money here. We don't, I have no clue whether you've ever given a dime to this church or not. And here's a reason for that. Then that removes that from being a concern when I'm shepherding you. I have no clue whether you give or don't give. That will never be the motive for how I try to love and care for you, nor will it be the motive of the other elders, because none of us know what you give. In your regular giving, in the building fund that's going on now, we don't know. Different churches choose to do it different ways. I have a healthy understanding of sin and the wickedness of my own heart. And so there are things I would rather not know. And I want it removed as even being a possibility well, the elders treated this person this way and this person this way because one gave more money. We have no clue who gave more money. 
And so that's not even a possible motivation. And I would encourage you, if some ministry is after your money, you need to get away. That, that's not what this is about. This is, it is the opposite. In fact, we're going to see by Paul's metaphors, the, the ministry is to be like a parent. They're to provide and care for the people, not seeing what they can get out of them. How weird would it be as we were sitting here on Mother's Day, if I called my mom to wish her Happy Mother's Day today, and all she kept saying was, well, when are you going to send me some money? I mean, that would be a little bit weird, wouldn't it? Well, gee, Mom, glad to talk to you again. Uh, but Paul's saying this because there are a lot of ministries that are that way. And if you need to be reminded, just click on Christian TV. I actually did that one night laying in a hotel room on our vacation, which Linda always hates. She can't stand when I click on Christian TV because most of it is so god-awful bad. And much of it boils down to this. If you want to be blessed, give money to me. The second you hear that, that is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Stay away from them. Paul says greed had nothing to do with what we were doing. And notice, Paul is so clear at this point, and he wants this to be so clear, he says, God is witness. I'm saying this before God. I am calling God to remember these words that I have spoken this. That's how solemnly I take them. God is witness. What I'm saying is true. And so then the overflow of all of that is Paul says, we weren't seeking glory from you. Whether, whether you or anyone else, um, that's not what we were after. We weren't after you giving up a particular type of response. We were after the approval of God. We want to bring glory to God, not get glory from you all. So Paul tells us that is their uh, part of their motive. And so godly, holy ministry, and this is true again whether it's a church leader, or even when we're reaching out to people, godly, holy ministry is always done for God's approval rather than applause or other benefits from other human beings. If you and I are gauging what we're doing by how people respond, you and I will become unfaithful. Because we will change what we're doing to get the response we want. And what response do we like from other people? Who in here likes to have other people like them and say nice things about them? Everybody, right? I mean, unless you're some kind of a sociopath, we like to have people like us. So if that becomes our goal, we will change the message. Because the message is just not popular. It is not popular. Paul says it's foolishness to Greeks, a stumbling block to Jews. It's a problem everywhere you go. And so if your goal is after that, Paul says you're going to end up changing the message and being unfaithful. And so we're called to live and to minister quorum Deo is the old Latin phrase he used, which meant before the face of God. God is right here. God is watching. God is listening. And he is seeing if I am being faithful. And since God is the one calling and trusting and judging our ministry, the evaluation of others is secondary. We didn't get it from them. We're not answering to them. We have to always test ourselves regarding our motives and our actions for ministry because motives do matter. And again, I'll step aside for just a moment and say, this is true even when we're reaching out to somebody. Friendship with, with somebody who is lost is not about trying to get a notch on my belt or saying I shared with them. Or, 
It's about loving and caring for them as a human being. People are never ministry targets. And if that's what they become, whether it's me sharing a gospel with a coworker or people in the church or whatever we're doing, if they become targets, something has gone wrong. We've put our gaze in the wrong place. Thirdly, Paul says that they've not only endured in a holy manner and they've not only had holy motives, but they actually worked it out in a holy manner. And he's going to give a whole bunch of descriptions here that we'll run through for this is the way ministry ought to be done. First, he tells us holy ministry is gentle, not demanding or domineering. So notice in actually verses 5 to 7, and it's a little bit hard to see, is all one long sentence in Greek. This is another problem. Paul likes these long sentences, which is good Greek, but very poor English. And so they keep breaking it up just to, to make the English better. But Paul is ending with the contrast. He's saying we weren't after greed and we weren't doing all of these things. And he's saying we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. We were Christ-authorized messengers. We had every right to make demands of you, but we did not. Instead of demanding, he says we were gentle like a nursing mother. So we think of, you know, Mother's Day uh, today as uh, people celebrate that and think about that. Paul says, fasten in your mind a, a young mom nursing their child and how they handle them. Okay? We, we've all seen this. Uh, I, watch, I love to watch my granddaughters sometimes like to pick up babies and act like they're being a mother. And they will be very gentle one moment and then they smack the baby down, you know, or drag it along and the head hits things. And you realize... They still have a little bit to learn about how all of this actually works out. And there is nothing that's more gentle to us than watching somebody care for a young nursing infant. And Paul says, that's the way we were. And so if someone boasts of their authority and is demanding and domineering, they're not being true ministers of Christ. And this is true in whatever area we're talking about. It's not only true in the church, it's also true in leadership in our home. Okay? I'm called as the husband to be the head of my house. In approaching 33 years of marriage, how many times do you think I've ever told Linda, I'm the head of the house, you've got to do what I say? None. Zero. It's true. Because... If I did, I wouldn't be here speaking to you. And secondly, that, that's a sign of lack of leadership, is what that is. That, that's domineering. That's crushing. That, is, that has nothing to do. Jesus said, hey, look, in, in the kingdom of God, it's not like it is out there in the world. In the world, the people in charge like to say, hey, look at me. Listen to me. Do what I'm telling you to do. This is about what I get. Jesus says, no. No, leadership in the kingdom is about servanthood. Leadership in the kingdom is about laying your life down for others. It's not about domineering. It's not about trying to crush someone else. And you can hear certain guys. There was, I, I won't put the name out, but there was a, a guy that was a good teacher of the Scripture out west. Good teacher of the Scripture. Led a large church that was about 15,000 people. And the whole thing crumbled in about a six-month period because it came out he was crushing and domineering in the way he led. He was abusive in the way he led. In fact, many members of his staff ended up becoming alcoholics because they couldn't take the pressure of what it was like 
to work for this person. And I don't care how good their ability is to speak, how intelligent they may be, or how magnetic their personality is, if that's the way they are, you should flee. They have to be gentle and loving and serving. We should never submit to leaders who domineer, who constantly command us to submit to their authority or make threats if you do not listen. That is not the Spirit of Christ. Okay, And we need to be reminded of this. No elder or church leader is an intermediary between you and God. That's not their role. I, I had someone one time, was they, they were struggling with something I had, I had observed and I had spoken to them about, and they kept wrestling with this. And I told them multiple times, I said, you need to understand, I'm not some kind of an intermediary. It's not like if you don't listen to me, God's now angry with you. That's not the way this works. I'm an older brother in Christ. I'm trying to tell you, based on years and years of walking with Jesus and my understanding of the Word of God, this is a better path for you to go. But if you don't listen to me, the reason you'll be in trouble is if you don't go the way that God calls you to go, not because you didn't listen to me. This is not about me being some kind of position between you and Jesus. And if anybody acts in a way other than that, <clears throat> flee. Stay away from them. And again, if you are in authority, in a family, in a community, at work, this is the way that we are called to be. Holy ministry at its best is gentle, <clears throat> it is patient, and it is encouraging. Now, do all leaders fall short of that sometimes? Yes, they do. I, I can tell you I, I have not always been gentle and patient and kind, either in the church and with my wife, with my children. We all fall short of that ideal. But this has got to be the consistent pattern. The other things ought to be aberrations in the way we're leading. Patient, loving, encouragement to follow Christ rather than harsh, authoritarian, abusive leadership. That's the way we're called to. And I, I will tell you, I had somebody one time spoke to me, and they said, when I came to this church, I thought, having a Naval Academy of Graduate prior Marine, I was going to get a very different type of leadership. And I said, and if you'd been in my platoon, you would have. And I would have my hand around your throat right now and be choking you out. But I'm not leading a platoon. I'm a shepherd with the flock. And that's a very different type of leadership. Second area that Paul speaks about their manner was he said, holy ministry personally shares its life, not just truth. This is another area that I think we fall far short of in understanding in the church today. In verse 8, he said, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well because you've become so dear to us. Holy ministry does share truth. It, that's the gospel. That's what Paul said. We didn't change our message. We shared the truth. We shared the gospel of God, but we did something else. We shared our own life as well. Holy ministry is shepherding, which requires personal contact and life. There are many today. This is the hot method in the church today, is you would be sitting here and you would have flat Brett up on a screen. Dear God, why people want to do that, I can't fathom. That's not shepherding. You can't shepherd 12,000 people. It's not humanly possible. 
I mean, Jesus, and I'm going to take it, he was more capable than the rest of us. Okay? He didn't try and do that. So why would we do it? Well, we do it because we think what's needed is, I'll just proclaim the truth. It is important to proclaim the truth. But that's not all there is to shepherding. Shepherding requires sharing life. It is a personal ministry that the New Testament envisions. And so I encourage you, if, you, you know, if you're a young person, you're going to go off to college and you're looking, look for a shepherd, not just a teacher. You can get teaching by podcast. You can get teaching by buying a book. John Calvin has taught me much, but he can't shepherd me because he's dead. He's not there, okay? I've learned much from like John Piper today, but he can't shepherd me. I don't live in the same state. He, there's no way he could do it to everyone who's learning from him. We need shepherds. Paul says, we share with you our personal life. So if you can't know a teacher personally, you can't really know their motives, their lifestyle, their character. How can you know if someone is really what they're proclaiming to be unless you rub shoulders with them? You, you simply would not know. Don't be fooled. I could stand up here and tell you all kinds of ways that I treat Linda, and they all be lies. And here's the scary thing. I'm good enough at talking, I could convince you all. And if you think you would see through it, you're deceiving yourself. You wouldn't. How do you know how I treat Linda? You, well, yeah, you can ask her. <laughs> but the fact is, very often, if you really don't know us, she might lie too. There's only one way to know. You observe. You watch. And I'm either harsh and domineering or loving and serving. I speak well of her or I'm cutting her down and putting her down. And the only way to do that is to observe me and observe the other elders. This goes against much of what is popular in the church, but I tell you, I would never submit myself to a group of people who did not know me. If they ran into me in the Home Depot or something, and see, and they can feel, I remember a few years ago, Linda and I were up in, <clears throat> we were in a Home Depot in another part of the county, and <clears throat> somebody walked up and started talking to me very animatedly, and chatting with me and doing all this sort of stuff, they went to another church in the county, and they had been at a men's meeting that I had spoken at, where there were several hundred men, and I was very nice, and I engaged with them, and I did all this sort of stuff, and when they left, Linda said, who was that? I said, I have not a clue. I have no idea who that was. Don't even know which church they went to. But obviously they liked something that I taught at the men's retreat last year, and maybe I stood next to them in an elevator, and they felt like they knew me. They didn't know me from Adam. They just received some truth, but they weren't being shepherded. Don't put yourself in that place. You can feel like you know that person, but you don't know flat bread on a screen. You don't know him at all. And he absolutely does not know you. Don't settle for that. End of my rant. Third, but it, it's just a thing. We, we, we are a big box in our culture. You don't need shepherding by Amazon. You don't. So don't give in to it. The third thing Paul says about his ministry is it was built on a holy life. Verses 9 and 10, he says, You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And your witnesses and God also, how holy 
holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. Notice again, Paul's like, God's witness. All of this is done before God, and I'm calling God to witness here. We not only spoke the truth, and we not only shared our lives, our lives were holy. Our lives matched what we were preaching. Holy ministry flows from a holy life. Those who minister have to be hardworking and godly in their personal life. You cannot reproduce what you are not. Because parents know this. Do children become what we say they ought to become? Or do they tend to become what we are? We reproduce what we are. And Paul says it's the same way in the church. Holy ministry requires holy living because you cannot encourage and pass on to others what you do not possess and live yourself. And have we seen people build huge ministries when their lives were completely the opposite of what they were proclaiming? This happens all the time. I remember as a young believer when I started getting shocked when it was, you know, the Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart and all that sort of thing. And, and you know the crazy thing? Many of those guys kept right on ministering. And people stayed there. I have no clue why. Because it doesn't even matter if what they're saying is true. It may be true, but if their life is ungodly, they ought not be leading in the church. It doesn't matter if what they say is true. And so Paul says, we lived in a holy manner. What you see is what you get. That's who we are. We were open. We were honest. We were hardworking. We conducted ourselves in a manner because we knew God was watching. And so we are called to be that way. And if we think about it, even in our own personal ministry, how effective am I going to be in reaching out and sharing the gospel at work if everything about my life at work undermines what I'm trying to proclaim to other people? Are they going to listen to me? They, they don't care my understanding of God and how God deals with our sin if I'm a terrible employee or a bad neighbor or an awful father. So our life has to back up our words. Fourth, Paul says, holy ministry urges others to follow God's commands. This is their manner again. And so... Paul says, you know how like a father with his children. So notice, remember when he said that they were gentle, he used the analogy of a nursing mother. He's now going to a father. And the father, particularly in the Greco-Roman world, uh, had kind of, it was the flip side of the coin to what the mother did. The mother was gentle and loving and kind. The father was more the disciplinarian and trying to train the child for the future. So holy ministry is gentle, like a nursing mother, but holy ministry also does not flinch from telling the truth. That gentleness does not mean that sometimes it won't say hard things that are unpopular. So we can't just take the one side and say, well, I like the gentle part, but then you hurt my feelings when you said X, Y, and Z. Well, sometimes the truth is hard. And sometimes truth has to be spoken in a manner to break through that it can be painful. And so Paul says, look, we were gentle and patient but we exhorted you to embrace and obey God's word. We're, we're working and urging you to do this. And notice in verse 12, he even says that 
we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. So the urging to growth and holiness was to each one. And that is emphatic in the Greek. Okay, Paul is saying every, each and every single one of you, we labored with to apply the word of God to you individually, which might have something to do with whether I could shepherd 3,000 people or not. Because it has to be personally applied, which means that we know each other well enough. And Paul says that there's this personal ministry, and it includes both tender encouragement, but also strong charging, speaking a word that is, that is more corrective in rebuking. And it's as the situation warranted. And what's interesting is Paul uses, the verbs that he uses here are, we are, it's, we are exhorting and encouraging and charging. All of this is present tense. In other words, it's not a one-time thing, but it was a regular ongoing thing. As we walked through life together, we saw where you weren't applying God's word the way it needed to be, and we were speaking that into your life. Not because we wanted to be harsh and domineering, but because like a father, we knew that we needed to train you. We knew that we needed to help you walk in a manner that was worthy of God. And so this is the flip side. We should never submit ourselves to leaders who are unwilling to speak the truth of God to us, calling us from personal sin to holy lives worthy of God. There, there are people today that are very nice people, but they will flinch from proclaiming God's word when it's not popular. We can't have that. A shepherd needs to hold to the word of God. A shepherd needs to speak things which may be uncomfortable. How many of us have sin in our lives? Every one of us. How many of us are having the culture shape and squeeze and mold us? Every last one of us. And a shepherd has to come alongside sometimes and say, I know enough about you. I know your past experiences, and I know they've shaped you this way, and I know what you're facing right now in life, and it's clouding your judgment. And I'm trying to be an outside person, not because I'm more holy or got it all figured out, but I'm an outside object person. I'm trying to call you and say, you're not letting God's word have its way here. You're giving way to fear. You're giving way to anger. You're giving way to greed or whatever it is. We have to continually do that. And so the, the call of holy ministry is to call all of us to, from personal sin to holy lives that are worthy of God and his gospel. There is a balance here between them. And so Holy ministry, to sum it all up, is Christ-like. It's like Jesus. It's gentle and serving rather than domineering. It is personal. And one of the hip words people like to use is incarnational. But what's really meant by that is it shares life. God didn't send a message. He became a human being and walked among us. Okay? And when Jesus sends us, there's an incarnational. We're sharing of life. It's consistent, flowing from a life of personal wholeness. What is spoken is what is lived, and it's courageous, calling others to obey God's word. That's what we should be looking for. And again, I, I want to urge you to, to hear this and apply it. And we're going to talk about it right now for just a moment how to apply the word regarding ministry, and then we're going to come to the table regarding this, this calling and urging to a life that is worthy of God. And so in applying the word, there's one simple question for us. And that question is, do I have biblical standards for ministry or worldly ones? 
Biblical standards for ministry are worldly ones. The things I've just described are the kind of church leadership we should be looking for. Flash is not important. Style is inconsequential. Substance is what matters. And I say this because what is most of the evangelical church in America running after? We're about style. That's what we're about. Not about substance. And people will flock after leaders who have the style, even if they're not lining up with all the things Paul just laid out to the Thessalonians. Many today look at worldly things, and we're all tempted to do this. What's the charisma of the person? How successful are they? How, how big is this? How many people can they get in there? By which standard Jesus is an utter failure? And I'm going to go with, I assume we recognize that something's wrong with the standard then. If you, if you measure Jesus against it, and it comes out saying Jesus is lacking in some way, the problem is not Jesus, your meter, your ruler is broken. Because he is the standard. Okay? Many today look for people that are, what they're looking for in the church, quite honestly, is a CEO. I had last year where a couple pastors I was hanging out with, one of them sent me an article, and the, and the article was entitled, Why You Should Thank Your Pastor For Being a CEO Rather Than a Shepherd. And they, they asked what I thought of it, and I said, well, I know you guys don't read Greek, but I'll go ahead and explain to you that the word pastor is the word shepherd. That's what the word is. So literally that article is why you should thank your shepherd for being a CEO rather than a shepherd. And here endeth my prosecution of the article. Because it's stupid on the face of it. Okay? Jesus could have said, I gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and CEOs. But he didn't. And it's not because he had lost a bit of omniscience and wasn't aware of that. He said, that's not what you need. What you need is a shepherd teacher, not a CEO. But what we're being molded in the church is to look after that. And what covers a multitude of sins in the church is charisma, CEO managerial skills, and we'll forgive all kinds of other things. And the scripture says that's a foolish standard. So I want to encourage you here at Bay Ridge, or if God ever calls you somewhere else, the thing to look for is, are the people operating out of proper motives, pleasing God and not man? Are they gentle rather than domineering? Do they share their life, not just words, but I can personally know them. Are they holy in their conduct? Does their life match what they preach? And are they consistent in speaking and applying God's Word even when it costs, even when it hurts, even if it means some people might walk out the back door? Are they willing to do that? And I want to encourage you, never be lured or settle for less than that. Never. This is a big deal. This is very relevant to our culture today. Because 
Those things that I just described, all from what Paul said, is not how people are choosing church today. Okay? Study after study after study says that's not what it's about. It's how good's the parking lot. Okay, well, I like to have a nice parking lot too. But that's not my, that's like saying, I went into a restaurant because they had the coolest table mats. The food they dug out of a dumpster out back. But the table mats were really nice. If I did that, you'd all think I'd lost my mind. But that's how people look for church today. And it's the wrong thing. Now the overflow of that is for all of us personally that we're called to holiness. The reason God calls for this particular type of ministry is because that's what produces what God is looking for in your life and in mine. And what He's looking for is lives of holiness. Remember, we saw a couple of weeks ago, the Thessalonians were holy because God had called them to Himself. We have the song we were singing uh, this morning said, holiness is Christ in me. Okay, We are holy because of the call of God upon us. But then the apostolic team came along and said, okay, you are holy, so live holy. Be who you are. Since you are God's holy people, live like God's holy people. And the same thing is as true for we Annapolitans for we who live here in central Maryland, as it was for the Thessalonians. And so this table that we're coming to today is a table of holiness. Which means, first off, it's only for those who've been set apart by God and called to himself and who have responded to the gospel. This table is not for someone who is not a believer. It is only for those who are following Christ. But secondly, it's a table of holiness because this is where... As God speaks to us by his word, he's not only gentle, like a nursing mother, he is also corrective, like a father. And so the Lord speaks to you and I regarding our sin, and this is the place where we come and we confess our sin. And we say, Lord, I want to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. I want to live in a manner worthy of you as my father. And it's a place of holiness because this is where we receive grace and strength to go out and live in holiness. So I want to encourage you this morning, as we take the, the elements here in a moment, and the ushers can go ahead and come forward. As we take these elements, I, I want to encourage you, open your heart up and say, God, is there anywhere where you're speaking to me where I've not been doing this? Maybe it's in my leadership, in my family. I've been harsh and domineering. Maybe it's I've tried to proclaim the gospel to someone else, but what they've seen of my life undermined my very words. Maybe it's just some personal sin you're aware of. But whatever it is, let's take it to God and confess it and ask Him to cleanse us and then ask Him to empower us so that we can live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. What I received from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out 
so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, as we come to your table this morning, we are ever mindful of the fact that the only reason we have access to this table is because of your life and death and resurrection in our place. So Lord, as we approach your holy table this morning, we are mindful that you told us, Jesus, not to give that which is holy to the dogs. And Lord, we would not approach your table in an unworthy manner. And so this morning, we take this time to confess our sins. We ask that your Holy Spirit would come and speak to us. Lord, I pray for each one of us, whatever sin is there, Lord, that you would speak for your people listen. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As you get the elements, please hold on to them. Consider, confess before the Lord, and then we will take them together in just a couple moments. Our Father and God, as we come to this table this morning, the table of holiness, Lord, we have taken a couple of minutes to reflect on our own areas of sin. Lord, Paul told us that they did not act out of error or falsehood or impure motives. But Lord, we recognize that very often we have. Father, we have sinned in various ways in thought, word, and deed. Father, we have struggled with lust and impurity and greed. Father, so often... We care more about what the broken people around us think than what you have spoken. Jesus, that would be crushing to us were it not for the fact that at this table we remember that you lived for us and you died for us. That you took flesh for us and then that flesh was broken because of us and our sin. And so, Lord, as each of us have humbly confessed this morning where we have sinned, in thought and word and deed, Father, we thank you that it is forgiven because of the broken body of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we say thank you. And Jesus, as we hold the cup, the cup of the new covenant in your blood, we are grateful and we are conf- uh, glad that we can have confidence to approach you by the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we are grateful that the blood was sufficient to not only break the penalty of sin, to bear and quench the righteous wrath of a holy God against all of our wickedness. But that that blood is powerful to cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, to break the very power of sin over us. That we who've walked in impurity could walk in purity. That we who had lived for greed now live for your glory. 
that we who had lived in rebellion now want to walk as your obedient sons and daughters. And so, Father, we take this, the cup of thanksgiving, and we say thanks be to God for the blood of Jesus Christ, which has cleansed and secured and purified us now and forevermore by the gospel of God. Take. Father, this morning as we have come to your table, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would move powerfully. Lord, I pray wherever we have been convicted, Lord, I know as I studied this, despite my best efforts, I see where I have failed as a man, as a husband, a father, a grandfather, a neighbor, a friend, a shepherd. Lord, my desire is to obey you. My desire is to walk in a manner worthy of God and the gospel. My desire is to be molded into the image of Christ. And Father, I speak this in behalf of each of us here. Father, this is our heart's cry. The Holy Spirit of the living God, I pray you would fall fresh on every one of us. I pray that you would mold to the very image of Jesus. I pray that as our sins have been cleansed and washed by the blood of Christ, so that you would continue to sanctify us day by day, that we might be like him in this world. You who have made us holy, setting us apart by the gospel, that you would make us holy in our conduct, that we would be who we are. Father, send your Spirit to do these things among us in these coming days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. I encourage you to receive God's word of blessing. It comes from Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. May He equip you with everything good for doing His will, and may He work in each of us what is pleasing to Him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's people say, Amen. Go in the peace of God. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.